0: Humble that one, you say it along. It's all right. want So um, how you guys doing? You guys ready to have some fun? It's going to be good. So uh, yeah, so there's different areas that we always work on inside. Na- uh, Best friends of Jesus, naturally supernatural, debt-free, and outrageously generous. Healthy kingdom family, discover, develop, and deploy your destiny. So we're going to continue on with the naturally supernatural theme here with a series on healing. I got some good news for you. God's in you uh, like a river, not like a puddle. A lot of people are like, I, I have nothing, I am nothing, I can do nothing. But Lord, stretch out your hand. I'm like, you've already agreed with the devil because you're agreeing that you're powerless. A lot of people are waiting for God to do something. They don't recognize he's already done something 2,000 years ago on the cross. I'm not sure if you guys realize this. He's not pouring out any more anointing on you. He put the Holy Spirit inside of you. How much more do you think you're going to get? Ephesians 1, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, says, You've received every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Um, every spiritual blessing. It didn't leave anything out. So God is not out there, and we're trying to get him to come here. Okay? He's in you uh, like a river, not like a puddle. And it says, Out of your belly will flow rivers of living water. The reason you look down when you pray is so you can see God. He's right there. He's not. All right, well, I'm. That wasn't in the notes. That was just a little freebie. we okay? So imagine someone who's drowning. You're not like, hey, um, the clothes aren't important, you know, and so I only want to save the person on the inside. You know, you just pull the whole person out. You're not like getting picky about the different parts. A lot of people are like, well, God paid for the forgiveness of your sins. No, no, no. He paid for the whole person. Our whole person was drowning, body, soul, and spirit, emotions, the whole hot mess. And he's like, I'm going to pull you out of that whole thing. Interesting, Third John 2, he says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. People are like, I'm just not sure if God wants us healthy. I'm not sure if God wants us prosperous. Beloved, I wish above all things that you would prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. How much do you think God wants your soul to prosper? Maybe just like a little bit of peace? He's like, no, peace that passes understanding. Oh, just maybe just a little bit of joy. If I could have a little squirt of joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. Like, like are you seeing? Like, he wants your, your emotions, your soul to prosper. And he wants your health to be that same way. Here's, for, uh, here's how it works for Christians. When Christians prosper on the inside, they can't help but prosper on the outside. I'm gonna We're going to work on our insides a little bit here today. And by work on them, I mean we're going to get our eyes on Jesus and see what he's already done and take it by faith. So... <clears throat> Jesus said something interesting in uh, Mark seven thirteen. He said uh, he was speaking to the Pharisees, who were like kind of the religious experts of the day, debating and telling everyone everything they were doing wrong and nitpicking. And I'm glad there's no people like that today. And so they're you're just you know they're the, the the you know the police on Facebook, just telling everyone the little mistakes that they're making. And he said, "You've uh, you've made the word of God of no effect through your religious tradition." So here's what that religious tradition looks like today is. Um, um, God won't do it until. And I always fill in something. God won't do it until you're hungry enough. God's holding back from revival from America because you're not hungry enough, because you're not praying enough. No, he's not holding back revival from America. We are. Come on. I'll tell you what. A couple of good public, public demonstrations of power, you'll have all the revival you can handle in the city. Yes. God, won't, uh, God won't do this until. You've gotten rid of all the sin in your life. Well, good luck with that. All right, I mean, he says, he who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, it's sin to him. So you're just blowing it right now. There's probably some good things you should be doing. God won't do it. I'm I'm just just getting into some stuff here. I don't even know what's happening. I got to get back to the notes here. The problem is I came with two messages this morning, and I'm still trying to figure out which one to preach. That's the problem. I always hate it when I get home, my wife's like, nice messages. I'm like, oh, I did it again, didn't I? I'm supposed to only give them one message. <clears throat> when Christians, when they prosper on the inside, they can't help but prosper on the outside. So I remember back in 2011, I did something crazy. I did an 18-part series on finances. Everyone remember that? 18-part series, which I soon found out was the uh, most offensive thing a pastor named Jim Baker could do. It's really so, <laughs> so September through March, we taught on finances. I didn't even teach on a lot of the things I teach on now about starting businesses and investing and stewarding money and all this type of thing. Just simply getting the heart conditions right. Are you guys ready for this? We had about 25% of our church got completely out of debt within 12 months, many of them including paying off their houses. Wow. How on earth does that happen? Because they begin to prosper on the inside. They begin to see what Jesus had already paid for, come into alignment with that, and it begins to affect your outside. You see this with the lottery winners. What happened is they... Uh, Their external circumstances got bigger than their internal circumstances, and what happens oftentimes is the lottery winners lose it all. Why? Because their external circumstances will eventually shrink down to their internal reality. See, for the kingdom, it always starts on the inside. Jesus said this. He said, "The kingdom of God is within you," which means all of kingdom issues are heart issues. How we doing? All right, so we've seen that over and over. We have a ministry here called Sozo. You're like, what a weird name. Well, it's actually from the New Testament. The New Testament was written in Greek. The word Sozo gets translated saved, healed, delivered, prospered, and protected. And so the, uh, our Sozo ministry just helps people kind of get free from lies. You know what happens when they get free on the inside? Oftentimes they get healed on the outside without anybody praying for the outside. We've had—I remember there was a lady that uh, came in that we, that we heard about. I wasn't there for this one, um, but one of our staff members was. She came in and she had a giant tumor on her back. And as she began to get freed up from some uh, of the pain of things that had been caused to her, as she got freed up on the inside and began to forgive, the tumor dissolved off her back without anybody praying for her. What happened? As she began to prosper on the inside, she prospered on the outside. Anyone guess what we're going to try to do today? We're going to prosper on the inside so that your healing can manifest. How are we doing? All right, let's start with this confession. Healing is not my idea, healing is, not my idea. Healing is God's idea. I'm not trying to convince him. He's trying to convince me. All right, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. You guys ready for this? All right, Hebrews. The key to Hebrews is better. Jesus is better. That'd be a good name for the book of Hebrews. Jesus, I think my friend Bill Vanderbush is actually doing a thing called Jesus is Better. Maybe that's where I got that idea from. Jesus is better. Better than what? He's better than the angels. For which of the angels did the Father ever say, come and sit next to me? You, you I've made the earth, your enemies, your footstool. Uh, which of the, you know, He's better than Moses, better than the law, better covenant, better, better, better. And so uh, let's look at part of that here in Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children, that's you and I, share in flesh and blood, that means you're human beings, okay? Um, he himself, the Lord Jesus, partook of the same things that through death he might destroy or render powerless, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. In other words, Jesus did not become an angel to save angels. He became a human to save humans. He became one of us, okay? Therefore, uh, verse 17, Therefore Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why did he have to become a human just like you and me? so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. That probably does phrase doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but it will by the time we're done with this. To make propitiation for the sins of people. How many of you guys have used the word propitiation in the past 24 hours? Anyone use that? And it just, just kind of rolls off your tongue, right? You're just kind of going down the street, and you don't hear a lot of rap songs using propitiation. But um, anyway, I don't know what this had to do. I guess this is the record scratching back in my DJ uh, days. Lord, help us. <laughs> Propitiation was a, was a Jewish sacrificial term, which means that all of God's wrath was taken out on the sacrifice. So There's no, nothing left for you, so now you are unpunishable. Wow, that's good. Okay. Good. Just say that with me. I'm unpunishable. I'm unpunishable. Now, the world may try to punish you and I tell you you're not good enough, this and that. I'm not saying you break the law. You're not going to jail. But from God's perspective, he's still going to love you as much when you're in jail as he does when you're uh, on your knees praying. See, God's not dealing with you based on your performance, on your behavior, on your goodness, on your badness. He's dealing with you based on your relationship with his son. And when you've been united to Jesus, he delights to treat you as if you were Jesus himself. How for Jesus do you think the father is? How many Jesus prayers do you think get answered? It's kind of like, ah, you're asking way too many things. Tired of hearing from you. You've been in the carpenter shop all day. You haven't been praying to me enough. No, 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 no. That's how he likes to treat you, as if you were Jesus himself. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help or come to the aid of those who are being tempted. We're going to kind of key in on that last verse there. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help or come to the aid of those who are being tempted. A lot of people think Jesus was like tempted like twice in his life, like once in the desert and then maybe once in the garden. You're like, that's it. Like, ah, yeah, that's not too bad. I've only had two shots at it my whole life. Well, we're going to see if there was more to it than just that, right? Some of your faces are great this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. There's that word high priest again. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what's the result of that? Verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Maybe you've heard, uh, maybe I've seen the uh, other translations. um, Come boldly to the throne of grace. Why would we come boldly to the throne of grace? That That we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. So I, know, I love those pictures of people like, you know, God's our father and we can crawl up in his lap and this and that. and Great, great, all that stuff. But here's why they're coming boldly to him. We can get help. It's not just about snuggle time and, and intimacy. And, we, and I mean, it all flows out of that. But I'm saying there's times when actually we need God to help us and not just to snuggle with us. How are we doing? Don't hear what I'm not saying. You can be intimate. You can snuggle. You can have all that stuff. But he's also powerful. He's not just his cute, cuddly grandfather, okay? He's the master of the universe. I guess that's a he-man term. i got to come up with a better phrase. He's the king of the universe. Our salvation hinges upon who the person of Jesus was. So here's Jesus. He was a human being. He was a person. However, that person is also the son of God. He was God his very self. So I'm not getting into the doctrine, but he was God and man at the same time. You're like, Jim, how could he do that? He was Jesus. He's amazing. He was able to do those things, all right. And so here's the deal: God's plan uh, is to deal with every person in uh, with one person. So you're either in Adam, or you are in Christ. We did a whole message about this a couple weeks ago. I think it was called um, "The Only People Jesus Heals." I think it was Jesus only heals people who don't deserve it. We looked at that, and we looked at how Jesus was our covenant representative. We looked, remember, guys, we looked at the story of David and how David went out to fight Goliath, and he represented all of Israel, and whatever happened to David happened to all of Israel, or whatever happened to um, Goliath happened to all of Philistia. That covenant representative, we were in one person. Jesus, God is dealing with you, whether you're in Adam, which you've got the sin nature, you're sinning on that nature, all the stuff that happens with that, and you're dealing with it, you're based on your performance then, Right? or you are in Christ, and he's dealing with you based on Jesus' performance. So what I want you to see, though, is when Jesus was um, on earth, he wasn't just living his life for us. He was living his life as us because he is our representative. So whatever happened to him during his life, whatever happened to him during his death, whatever happened to him in his resurrection, whatever happened to his ascension, it is as if those things are happening to us because he did not just die for us. He died as us. What's it say? It says when you died to sin, you were buried with Christ through baptism. He didn't just die for you. He died as you. It's as if these things had happened to you. And Now, there's this mystical reality that it happens instantaneously and irreversibly. When you get saved, you get joined to Christ, and all of his, his history becomes your history. You're like, Jim, this doesn't mean a whole lot. It's about to in a second here. Okay, so just, just hang on here. I'm setting you up for something. He was tempted in all points like we are yet he was without sin, okay? When was he tempted? He was tempted in his life, not just in his death. I think a lot of, we focus on the death of Jesus and when rightfully so, that was the, kind of the, 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 the crux of human history and we really, literally, we divide history, B.C. and A.D. and I know they're trying to make it like B.C.E. before the common era. What a wimpy way to get out of this thing. So Jesus literally split history down the middle with the cross, okay? But I want you guys to see this. It wasn't just what he did on the cross that we get the benefits from, It says he was tempted in all points like we are. He was tempted in his life. That's before he died. Okay? This is saying that he not only died for us, but he lived for us. This is going to be good here in a second. You guys ready? So Jesus was not God pretending to be human. He wasn't coming on, and he wasn't really human. He was kind of putting on this thing and made us think he was human. No, he was actually a human being. It says that he was made like us. Okay? He, he, was, uh, he is God who is made like us in every way except for sin. So we read here that he's a high priest who can sympathize with us. Here's what sympathize means. It means not merely knowing about something, but having it as an experience. Here's a pre- high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted like we are. So here's what that means. So I've been there for uh, the birth of all three of my boys. And so um, I you know, observed it carefully. I was pre-med in college. I understand how babies are made. Perhaps you do too. And so maybe you're privy to that information. And uh, I understand the anatomy, the physiology behind these things. And so, um, you know, I'm the father of my children. I know how babies are made. If someone says, Jim, do you know what it's like to have a baby? I said, of course I do. I've read it in a science book. You know, I've observed this thing happening. And um, how many of you guys know that's not the same as knowing what it's like to have a baby because you've observed it or read about it? All right. My wife, Mary, she has a whole different uh, level of experience with the birthing of children than I do, right? She didn't read about it in a science book or just observe it. She experienced it up close and personal. Somewhere to say, Mary, you don't know what it's like to have a baby. She would say, oh, yes, I do. Like, right? So not because she read it or watched it. Listen, God, guys, God knows everything. Not because he read it in the Infinite Science Knowledge of Humanity book. Not because he's been observing human history. He knows what tears are like because he's felt the sting of tears in his eyes. He knows what grief is like because he's had uh, friends stab him in the back and twist the knife and betray him. Okay? So let's break it down to where we live. You guys ready for this? Jesus was born in a third world country in a stable. Now, if you were to look at the Christmas cards, you would think it's almost desirable to be born in a stable. Doesn't it just look so wonderful? It's so warm and cozy, that hay this looks so fluffy. Have you ever laid on hay? It's like, you know, so it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it looks warm and snuggy. If you're a farmer, a stable is where you put straw-fairy animals, where they went and ate, and all the fluids and all the mess that went with that whole thing. The closest thing today we could say is Jesus was born in a truck stop. Okay, remember, he was born. There was no room in the inn. Oh, there was these hotels, and he's, he's out here in this little parking lot. Oh, it's so cute, in the manger, and the glow, and all this stuff. Well, let's look at what it was like. So here's what the inn was like. So imagine uh, these back walls are all little cave openings, okay? Those were the rooms in the inn. They went in the hole, no private door. They, uh, you know, they put their bedding down and slept for the night. And so out in the, uh, the, the manger, the, the, the stable area, was where the um, drivers parked their camels. And the camels were eating and doing all their fluids and all that stuff. You guys, have you ever been around a camel? Those are like the honriest animals that God has ever made. I mean, those are the stinkiest, most stubborn, disgusting animals. And when God became flesh, he was born in a parking lot of a sleazy motel surrounded by foul-mouthed truckers and camels and mules. Are you guys seeing what that is like in a third-world country? Have you ever gone to the bathroom in a third-world country? Okay. That, that's, okay, that's in the 21st century. First century, back then, third-world country stop. How we doing? Jesus grew up under the stigma of being born on a wedlock. And so that stigma is much stronger in the first century Jewish family than it is today. When he was two years old, Jesus was ripped out of his crib, rushed away, being pursued by the leader of a country, King Herod, trying to kill him. He just barely snuck across the border to Egypt. I want you to think about how traumatic it is for a child to live as a refugee from people trying to kill him where these stories of Nazi Germany and Somalia and these other rep- oppressive regimes and uh, war torn countries villages being wiped out. Jesus was the survivor of one of the most oppressive regimes the earth has ever seen. Jesus says, "Listen, you fled from Hitler, I know what it's like to f- uh, flee from Herod. And not only did I, do, did I experience these things, I've overcome them and now I can give you that same strength." Jesus was raised in Nazareth. I'm not sure what you guys think Nazareth is like. It was a dump. All right, what did Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I'm not going to try to give an equivalent today because I'm going to offend some region of the country, but you can insert your own place there where you think is a dump. Don't say it out loud, just so you can think it yourselves. Um, There was a Roman garrison. When he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth, he was echoing what everyone else was thinking. This place is podunk. This place is backwards. This place is nasty. There was a Roman garrison in Nazareth, and uh, it was a place that was full of terrorists. History tells us Jesus would have grown up looking at the silhouettes of the the hills, being uh, littered with crosses, knowing exactly what happens to people who fight against Rome. And You guys understand, uh, you know, we have, have, you know, there's racial issues, discrimination today. Um, The Jews were living under the bondage of the Romans. The Romans could do whatever they wanted to them. The Romans hated the Jews. Uh, In fact, the people who were in the Roman army that got assigned to Israel, it's because they were bad somewhere else. The worst assignment you could get was Israel because these ornery Jews, they just wouldn't submit. They just wouldn't subdue. So Jesus knew what it was like to be discriminated by Romans. Jesus understood racism, discrimination. He knew what it was like to be despised just for being a Jew, to have a Roman kick him in the ribs just because he was a Jew. Watch anything about Jesus growing up on the streets? Are we okay here? Why don't you think about Jesus growing up on the streets, raised with his brothers and sisters? Have you ever thought about this? Jesus was sinless. Have you ever thought about a sinless toddler? Probably not if you've ever been around toddlers, right? So imagine the pressure of a sinless toddler being raised with other sinful toddlers. There's a lot of pressure in that little house in Nazareth. At 12 years old, uh, Jesus was way ahead mentally of other 12-year-olds. Not because he had a super brain, but because his brain wasn't clouded by sin. He was able to think. Remember what he was doing? He's actually teaching and instructing leaders in rabbinic techniques. And so uh, uh, the way uh, um, is what he said, he, he was um, asking them questions, which was a way of kind of interrogating the law and showing, showing it, that's how they taught back then, let's just put it that way. And so remember his parents, they spent three days looking for him. That's gotta be really a, kind of a scary thing. I mean, they already knew he was like the savior of the world, the angels, and it's like, oh my goodness, we've lost Jesus. We've, we've lost the Messiah. Like the, the one deal we had, the one, only, only assignment we had was just raise this kid. We've lost the Messiah. Like I mean, imagine the panic that's setting in. But um, so his parents spent uh, three days. They finally found him. Listen, have you ever been a teenager who knows more than their parents? Jesus actually did. Okay, I know some of you think you do. Jesus actually did. Okay, and here's what it says in Luke 2.51, that Jesus submitted himself to his parents. Which tells me that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted to be a rebellious teenager. And he had enough data to be that. He actually knew more than his parents. But he deliberately chose to submit himself to his parents. All the parents like nudging your kids like pay attention to this part here. Which means that any teenager that's going through that churning of becoming an adult, Jesus has been through that. He knows exactly what it's like. Jesus was an apprentice to his father at 12 years of age to become a carpenter in Nazareth. That means manual labor. That means long, hard hours uh, in the ancient Near East baking sun. Have you ever come home at night dog-tired? God knows what that's like. And then we've got nothing. From 12 years of age to 30 years of age, absolutely nothing. I don't know about you, but I'm like, like uh, you know, I, I want to know every detail. Like, what is happening? Like what's, like, what's high school like? You know, wouldn't that be like an interesting reality show, what, you know? Why, when God becomes flesh, we want to know every minute, why do we just have silence? I would submit this to you. I suggest because he was so like us, there was nothing to write about. I think a lot of people think he's just this holy man, kind of going from adventure to adventure. But he lived a normal life in Nazareth. I mean, you, you and I, we get up in the morning, we brush our teeth, hopefully. Um, you go to work, you work all day, you come home, eat some dinner, go to bed. Like, it's not that exciting. They're, they're not going to make a show about that, right? There's, there's, there's not writing a whole bunch about that. And so I would say from the ages of 12 to 13, I'm sorry, 12 to 30, there was nothing to write about. Jesus was so like us that he was, it, the, the, it would have been mundane to record it. And I say this, that relates to exactly to where you and I are. When God became flesh, he's, uh, he's making doors. Maybe he made some Pinewood Derby cars in the carpentry shop. I don't know. He's installing kitchens, dealing with weird customers. All those things that, remember when he taught the Sermon on the Mount? He didn't just like, poof, come up with this stuff, okay? He didn't just come up with that out of the blue. He learned it in those years growing up under the Father in Nazareth. It's illegal in the kingdom of God to preach what you haven't lived, okay? So Jesus lived it. So let's begin to look at some of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus would have gone through. Like I said, Jesus lived in Nazareth where the Romans hated the Jews. One of the favorite things the Romans would do is come upon some unsuspecting Jew and steal their coat. And what did Jesus say? He says, if anyone takes your coat, give him his shirt also. And where did Jesus get that from? Because the Romans, I'm sure, had come upon and st- stolen his coat. And you can just see Jesus. He's like, hey, take this too. I mean, can you imagine the reactions of the soldiers? Like, what is this guy? What is going on? This is, this guy's from a different world. When they slapped them in the, remember when Jesus said, "If someone slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek." Where did he learn that? Where where did he get that teaching from? From being slapped in the face and having to choose to not retaliate and trust himself to the Father's care. When the Romans were on the march, they had these giant pack backpacks, and they had a law that said you could force it, you could grab them. Test How we doing? That was a pretty good transition. I'm just gonna have to say that one. It's almost like we practiced it. What's that? Oh, good job. Thank you. Thank you, sweetheart. I received that. So the the Romans had this practice that said, if you're carrying this heavy backpack, you could go and uh, grab a muscular Jew and make him uh, carry it for you one mile. And Jesus says, hey, don't just carry it one mile, carry it the second mile. Where do you get this? Like, can you imagine? I mean, we, we, we read these stories, but imagine you're in your workplace, and all of a sudden someone comes and grabs you and makes you carry a heavy pack for a mile. I mean, these are oppressive times. We just kind of read these things like cute little phrases. Oh, yeah, carry it that second mile. Give a little bit more effort at work. No, no, this is actually happening. It was during those years between ages 12 and 30 that Jesus stood by the grave of Joseph, his earthly father, and he understood grief. Jesus knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like by experience to stand by the only person he's ever called father on the earth, to go back to an empty house and learn how to take over the responsibilities of the business. Have you ever sat as a young businessman with all the hassles and bills and have to choose not to cheat? God knows what it's like to be tempted to cut corners. He knows what it's like to have to deal with the strangest of customers. Can I get an amen from anyone dealing with the strangest of customers? He became so successful that he became known as the carpenter of Nazareth and all of the temptations and trials that come with success. He knows what it's like to look at those oppressive Roman taxes that were, you know, like 60%, 70%. It's like living in California. Anyway, so he'd say, he knows what it's like those, opp- those oppressive taxes and to, to learn by experience to have to go to his heavenly Abba and say, he who cares for the birds cares for this little house in, in Jerusalem here and to trust himself to the Father there. So when he taught the Sermon on the Mount, he wasn't making up as he was going along. He wasn't just getting this revelation just out of nowhere. It was birth in those years of being an ordinary businessman. And then all of a sudden, he has to leave everything behind. I'm not sure if the Lord's ever asked you to do that. You've got a life. Everything's going good. He says, I want you to leave all of that, and I want you to be a traveling uh, rabbi. So that anguish of leaving everything behind, the family, the business, uh, everything he's called to preach after being baptized by his cousin in the Jordan River. And then he goes into the wilderness to face Satan eyeball to eyeball. Now, no one has faced Satan eyeball to eyeball since Adam. You know, he'd always sent his demons to do it, to do the tempting. But now Satan himself faces this man in the wilderness, and he tempts this man with everything that he tempted the first man with. But now he does it uh, to Jesus. But Jesus does it without sin. So Jesus trashes Satan in the wilderness. This is the decisive moment where Jesus bound the strong man. Remember that in Luke chapter where you bind the strong man? And all the demons get out. Oh my goodness, there is a son of David. There is someone who's come who is more powerful. And they start freaking out. Remember, so Jesus starts going into the temples, they're like, Son of David, have mercy. You know, they're like freaking out. We know who you are. And then there was misunderstanding. Remember, his brothers didn't even believe in him. His mom didn't even understand. So remember when he went to Capernaum, they tried to get him committed. They thought he was crazy. Remember that in John chapter 6. So Jesus knows rejection. He knows loneliness. Jesus knows failure. He went into a city and did miracles and poured out his heart and gave him everything the father had. And as he's leaving Jerusalem, he says this, How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And it says he, uh, he cried with great sobs because he'd failed in Jerusalem. God knows what it's like to fail. He knows what it's like to be homeless. It says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We see in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus and his disciples, they're picking grain from the, from the fields and all these type of things. They, did, you know, they, were, they knew what it was like to be completely dependent upon Jesus, uh, upon God for resources and for their next meal. You have to understand this, guys. When Jesus rose from the dead and went to, into the invisible half of the universe, he didn't leave his humanity behind. He wasn't like, oh, so glad to be done with the human thing. Now I can do the 100% God thing. A human being is literally ruling this universe with a glorified body right now. Jesus has a glorified body. A human being is ruling this universe right now. So when you begin to share with Jesus your pain, he knows exactly what you're talking about because he's been there. But he's not just been there, he's been victorious in it. I think a lot of people picture Jesus as kind of like this pincushion and, oh, my goodness, he just had all these horrible things happen to him. Well, he did have horrible things happen to him, but he was actually able to take grace from the Father and overcome those things and be victorious in every situation. So here's what that means. When you come to God, he's just not going to just pat you on the shoulder and go, oh, man, that sounds so bad. I know, I know, I know. Not only does he know by experience, but he's actually overcome it so he can break the bread off of his own life and feed you. He can take the victory that he used to overcome and now give you that same victory in that same situation. You can boldly come to the throne of grace. You can tell him every detail. and You come to him with confidence that no matter what you're going through, he's been there and he can give you you strength. I'm not sure if you've ever been to, you know, like someone's trying to comfort you. I know, I know. It doesn't matter if you just know. You can't do anything about it. God says not only do I know but I'm going to give you a strength that overcomes. God doesn't just communicate to you advice. He communicates to you the very life that triumphed in that situation that you're now going through. Now, did you ever notice that, like, when it comes to the end of Jesus' life, the sufferings and the persecutions intensified? It's like, why on earth is that happening? you ever asked, why did Jesus have to suffer? We know that the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sins, Right? So why did he have to suffer? Because in the Old Testament, they just pulled back the lamb's neck, slit the jugular. There was no suffering. The blood was poured out. The sins were covered, right? So if that's all that Jesus was after, um, why did there have to be a cross, right? Why Why didn't they just do it humanely like the lambs? It was just the blood that was after. Do you understand the dilemma? Why the sufferings? Why the beatings? Why the spitting in his face and the tearing out his beard and the mockings and the scourgings and the crown of thorns? Why all of the hell that he went through into his death? Why not just get straight to the death? Right? Why did he have to suffer? Are you guys beginning to see why? Because there's sufferings on this earth that are so horrendous that some people may go through that just being raised as a, a, under the Roman oppression and slavery in, in Nazareth, it wouldn't have been enough. There's some horrors that uh, some people go through that he needed to go through So he could comfort you with anything. Isaiah said this in his great prophecy. The the Messiah would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. Okay, So we've emphasized that Jesus has died for our sin and our sickness. uh, And of course, absolutely he did this. But he also bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. So the word grief in Hebrew, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. It means weakness, distress, anguish, heartache, sadness, mourning, and misery. Here's what that means. Jesus not only took your outer sickness he took your inner sickness as well the sadness of life when you go mourning it says this he bore your griefs and it says he carried your sorrows here's what the word sorrows means pain of the mind and body mental emotional pain of one who has been hurt by others Jesus last arrows last hours of grief and sorrow of the whole human race it was not caused by his own actions like I guess understanding this. The things that were done to him were unjust. It wasn't like he was being punished because he was a criminal. There was, there was a, a, a total lack of justice. There's a lot of you who are here today, and you have grief and sorrow that you did not bring on yourself. Some of you, it was brought on by your parents. It was brought on to you by your peers or relatives. They sinned, and you got caught in the crossfire, and it's left you with grief and sorrow these many years. <clears throat> I want you to look at what Jesus went through. He was betrayed. Now, in light of everything we're talking about, why did Jesus have to be betrayed? It has nothing to do with the taking away of my sin. So why do we have Judas the betrayer? Because Jesus had a no by experience, a best friend stabbing you in the back and twisting the knife. That's why he can sit by someone who's going through a divorce. Those of you who are unable to sleep because a trusted friend has betrayed you, God Almighty says, I know what that is like. Remember uh, when Judas betrayed, him, uh, betrayed Jesus in the garden? Do you remember how he betrayed him? He didn't give it with a slap in the face or a spit in the face or a punch in the gut. Um, he did it with a kiss. In the, in the margin of your Bible, it says he repeatedly kissed him, which would be the equivalent of giving a good old friend a big bear hug. I'm sure Jesus had to be like, seriously, Judas, you are betraying me, and you're doing it like this. Jesus knows emotional abuse When Peter, his best friend, accompanied by John, maybe his very, very best friend, they're in the middle of the house of uh, Annas, the high priest, warming their hands in the fire. And uh, Jesus is up in the balcony within earshot. And Annas asked Jesus a legal question. He says this, what do you teach? Okay. And Jesus responded with a legal response, ask those who heard me. In other words, he's calling for witnesses. You guys remember this? And it says, John slumped down and continued to warm his hands. And it says, Peter blasphemed and cursed and says, I don't even know what you're talking about, blankety, blank, blank. You guys remember this? And you remember reading these words, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. Those two men down there were saying, Jesus, right now it's not convenient for us to know you. We don't want to be associated with you as our best friends. He has been there. You guys understand what I'm saying here? Yeah. Jesus was denied justice. He was denied all human rights. He was humiliated, false accusations, physical abuse verbal abuse, with the mockings. I want you guys to understand this. Jesus understands sexual abuse. See, we've never seen a true picture of the crucifixion in the Western culture. Um, In crucifixion, what they actually did was they stripped their victims naked, and they were crucified naked in front of everybody. Any judge in Columbus will tell you that if someone is stripped against their will and put up on display to be publicly humiliated, that's sexual abuse. And there's some of you who are here today and you were sexually abused and there are things that were done against your innocent body and God Almighty knows what that is by experience. Not just because he's Almighty God, because he's experienced those horrors himself. Remember the ladies of Jerusalem that came with narcotics and they didn't have a sponge and they put it up to his lips. And it was a practice that they had just to help ease the ferocious pain a little bit during crucifixion. What did Jesus do? He refused it. Right? Why? Because he had to experience that pain and grief and sorrow to the full. He experienced every ounce of it so he could give you everything that you would need in your moment of difficulty. He drank that that cup of sorrow, carried it into death, and then he killed death and overcame death. When he rose from the dead, he said, your grief, your sorrow, you've sinned, I've taken it out of you. And I totally have experienced it for you, so you do not have to carry it yourself. I will, I will carry you out of grief and sorrow, and you can, I will cause you to live in the power of my resurrection. This is the answer to all of the abuse that was brought in your childhood. This is the answer that causes us to be able to lay down the betrayals and the divorces that have ripped our lives to shreds. As you realize that he took this pain, this abuse, that he took it, it doesn't belong to you anymore. I don't know how many people, they, I, they, they're sick on the inside. You can tell it by the way they talk. This is my sickness, my betrayal, my unforgiveness, my this and that. And they take ownership on it. I got some good news for you. Jesus carried that so you don't have to carry it anymore. Listen, if you talk sick, if you think sick, if you act sick, and then you go to pray for a miracle and wonder why it doesn't work, it's because you haven't changed on the inside. You're identifying that sickness with you. If you've got these betrayals, this abuse, and these become yours on the inside, you wonder why you can't get free? It's because you've identified them as yours. But here's the good news is that Jesus has carried these things for you so they don't belong to you anymore. You can tell him about the shame that you're wearing, the abuse that was given to you. You can tell him about life as it's actually happening to you, and you can boldly come to him. And God doesn't just say, I know. But he says, not only do I know, I felt that, and I'm feeling it right now. And because I felt it and I've carried it, it's no longer yours. I give you my grace. I'm infusing you with my spirit and my strength. And in that, you walk away from your past. You don't have to drag it around with you any longer. You're now able to forgive those who have abused you. Forgive doesn't mean, hey, what you did is okay. Listen, you can still press charges if you need to press charges. It means, yeah, forgive means to release them, and you no longer have your hands around their throat. No longer are you bitter, seeking revenge, or wanting to hurt those who have hurt you. You release them because they're no longer your business. You release them to God, and you hope to God that they find Jesus the same way you did. Your responsibility is just to forgive. I remember I had this dream, and uh, in the dream, I'm sitting next to my cousin, Heather, and we're sitting on this front porch, and we are both grieving over the losses of our sister. So in real life, Heather's sister, Jane, passed away. I did that funeral. And in real life, my sister uh, has passed away. I did that funeral. So in the, in the dream, we're grieving over this. And I woke up. And I'm not sure if you ever had like that toxic, it's almost like a demonic grief. There's just no hope to it. It's just tearing you on the inside. I woke up with this, and I just felt like I was suffocating. Just All the stuff that happened to my sister just all came back to me. And in that moment, I had a, a flash of Isaiah 61. He gives you beauty instead of ashes, the oil of uh, gladness for the, uh, instead of mourning. And I, I, that word instead just kind of just came up, and I'm like, hold on. He's going to do an exchange with me. And so in, in this moment, I don't know how else to describe it, but all that grief and that toxicity and just that weightiness, it left in a moment, just as, just as much as when we see a tumor dissolve, or as we heard this morning, those sores on the inside of a mouth disappeared when she took communion. Um, just as instantaneous as that the Lord healed my emotions in just an instant and so I just kind of began to uh, uh, investigate this a little more Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3 the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he is in this is Jesus this is the fulfillment of what the Messiah would do the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor anyone know what good news to the poor is you ain't got to be poor anymore not trying to teach on prosperity, but I want you to see God would no more rather have you in poverty than He would have you in adultery. He paid for you to come out of both. How did the curse of poverty come on the earth? Thorns and, uh, thorns and thistles and sweat of the brow. What did Jesus take on the cross? Thorns and thistles on His brow, and He sweat and shed blood to break the curse of poverty. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison, those who are bound. Interesting, you got a whole bunch of negative conditions with a solution. What's his solution to brokenhearted? He's going to bind it up. Captives, he's going to set them at liberty. Um, Those who are bound, opening the prison doors. What was the solution to poverty? The good news. Well, Jim, is that that prosperity gospel? Well, there's no prosperity gospel, but the gospel of the kingdom includes prosperity. The solution to poverty is the gospel. Somehow the gospel has the seeds in it to pull you out of poverty. We could go on on this, but it's all in the 18-part series. To proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord's and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Interesting in Isaiah here, when Jesus quotes this in Luke 4, he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and then he shuts the books. Why? Because it's not the day of the vengeance of our God. We're in the last days. We're not in the last day. The last day is the great and terrible day of the Lord. It'll be great for you and me. It'll be terrible for those who don't know Jesus. But there, there is no judgment for you and me right now. He became the propitiation. It says not only for our sins, but for the sins of the entire world, which means God's not in a bad mood, which means God's not mad. He's not even a little bit ticked off. Jesus has uh, all the obstacles between God and, uh, and you have been removed for the entire planet. It doesn't mean the entire planet saved. It means from God's perspective, he's the prodigal father scanning the horizon with his arms open, waiting for them to just turn around so they can receive his love. Turn around, that's what repentance means. I'm going to do a 180. I mean, I've been running from God, doing my own thing. I don't want your help. I can do it on my own strength. You know what? I give up. I'm, I receive your love. I receive that forgiveness, and I begin walking towards you. That's, that's what salvation looks like. Verse three, to grant all those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of heaviness, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I love this verse because I think this is a picture of what um, is going to happen with the Normandy Project. You got the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, those who are bound. They, uh, they begin to experience the goodness of God, the, the, the spirit of the Lord upon them. And what happens? They get this exchange, and they become oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. He goes on and talks about how they become the pillars of the city. That's what excites me. Though. Our normally project is, is a project for girls coming out of human trafficking. Can you just see this, though? Here's these people who have all these problems, and the spirit of the Lord comes upon me, and he gives them an exchange, and they become the ones who rebuild the city. Doesn't that just sound like something God would do? See, the healing of your emotions is through this divine displacement. It's through that word instead. He doesn't just take out the negative. He gives you the positive. He doesn't just get you out of debt. He puts you all the way into the black. Black is good, right? Red's bad. Yeah, red's bleeding. That's how we read it for money. Yeah, oh, yeah. Put you into the black. It's beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. God brings healing by displacing those negative wounds, those negative emotions with his own nature, with a piece of himself. I'm going to close with this picture. Then we're going to do a little exercise together. I may have told this story recently. I talk all day every day. I don't know where I talk to say this stuff. So, so I, I was a couple years ago, and we decided to do, uh, we were calling it uh, Cancer Sunday. And Mary's like, let's not call it Cancer now. Let's call it Cancer Free Sunday. I'm like, way better title, way better title. And so, uh, so we were, you know, we're talking about you know, we're going to heal cancer. And so, you know, I did a message and, what, you know, whatever I taught them. You're making bold claims for Jesus. We had people line up, and I think there was about like 12 or 14 people. I don't remember how many people lined up at first. And so I go down there, and I pray for the first person, and I felt the tumor in my hand, and my faith ran out the door. I was like, oh, God, it's, like, it's a big tumor. You now, what am I focusing on? I'm focusing on the tumor. Prayed and nothing happened. Prayed and nothing happened. So I thought, you know what, maybe instead of praying, I should just see what God wants to do, you know. Not that I had to figure out if he wanted to heal, but I wanted to see how he wanted to do this, right. Jesus actually never prayed for the, in those 26 healing stories of Jesus. He did it different every time. I don't think it was so, you know, it's not like TJ Maxx, never the same place twice, you know. But he, had, he did it differently because that's how they needed to receive, okay. But when you see the healing of the crowds, most of it was just laying on of hands. And so I was like, Lord, you know, how do you want to do this? And so the Lord took me back in a memory uh, to that summer when we had Saturday night service. Oh, Lord, I'm so glad we're not doing those. And so the, um, I'm not going to tell you why. Anyway, so the, um, it's too funny. Anyway, so, the, uh, so we had a Saturday night service, and there was a lady uh, who was a Catholic, and she'd never been to a Protestant church, and she's in a wheelchair, and she comes rolling in the wheelchair, assisted the service. So I'm talking to her afterwards. I'm like, oh, we love Catholics. So glad you're here. And uh, as she's talking to me, I just feel like the Lord says she's carrying something she doesn't need to carry. And so I was like, hey, um, I just feel like uh, you're, the Lord's telling me that you're carrying something that you don't need to carry. She says, what is it? I said, I don't know. And so I said, um, I feel like I did tell this story fairly recently. I said, uh, so why don't you ask the Holy Spirit, so what are you carrying? So she says, Holy Spirit, what am I carrying that I don't need to carry? And she goes, oh, it's unforgiveness towards my father. I said, okay. And um, I said, now ask him what he wants to give you instead. And uh, she goes, Holy Spirit, what do you want to give me instead? Oh. She says, "Um, I see a field of flowers. What's it mean? I said, I don't know. I said, let's ask the Holy Spirit. And so she says, Holy Spirit, what's it mean? She goes, oh. She was just precious like that. She just kept gasping. She was super innocent, just super precious. And she says, I saw a hand come, and it was the hand of the Father, and he walked me through that field into freedom. I said, oh. I said, that's good. And so I said, here's what I want you to do. I said, I want you to look at me. I said, you know, it's hard to receive something when you're holding on to something. So I said, just I want you to let go of that unforgiveness And I want you to receive him walking you into that field of freedom. I said, whatever that looks like between you and God, I want you to do this exchange. And so she closes her eyes. And so I got my eyes open. And I couldn't, like, see physically anything happen. But I could just see in the spirit there was this beautiful exchange happen. she opens up. She says, it's done. I said, beautiful. And maybe it took, you know, 20, 30 seconds. I don't know. And so so then she goes rolling up to our our ministry team. They had people praying for healing at the end. And so I'm talking to some other people. Maybe two or three minutes later, I hear this screaming. I'm like, what's going on? And she's out of the wheelchair. And um, so it comes to find out she'd been in the wheelchair two or three years, and they told her she'd never walk again. You know, it wasn't like, you know, she had a little sprain, but she could still walk. They told her she'd never walk again. So she's up there, and she is going for I forget what her name was. Lucy or something? Anyway, and so she's, uh, she's super happy. And, um, and so I'm kind of, you know, finding what's happening. So I go talk to some more people. And as she's leaving, she's pushing the wheelchair to her car. And she says, my husband's not going to believe this. And she keeps going in. That's awesome. Comes in in the wheelchair. Leaves out with the wheelchair. Yeah. And so, um, so I'm, you know, cancer, cancer-free Sunday, that whole thing goes through my mind. And so I'm like, you know, Phineas and Ferb, I know what I'm going to do today. And so I'm like, I, I'm like, okay, everybody, we're going to do this exchange exercise. And so we did the exchange, and then, uh, then we went and prayed for the person. Whew, tumor goes right down under the hand. The next person, I don't think they had cancer. They had something going on with their shoulder where it was like knife pain. You know, they could only get it halfway up, and it felt like knives were in their shoulder. Prayed, and boom, they're swinging it fully around. And, I, and uh, it seemed like about, I don't know, 8 out of 10, you know, like people got instantaneous breakthroughs. Some people had a cancer you couldn't tell, but the ones who had tumors, like they were leaving. Like, you know, either completely gone or leaving, and so... Every once in a while, the Lord will just remind me of that story. And so I had a whole different message planned that a whole, maybe I'll do next week. But I just felt like we need to do some exchanges here. And so just real simple, I want you to see that the he, and listen, I'm not trying to make light of anybody's pain. What I'm trying to do is shine light on what Jesus did. And since so some of you have been carrying this stuff for a long time. It's actually become part of your identity. I'm a sexual abuse survivor. I'm a divorcee. I'm a this and that. And so um, God, God's giving you an opportunity right now to exchange your old identity for a new upgrade, yeah. to take some of those old hurts, you know, I'm that person who was done wrong, and they did this. And I'm not trying to make light of that. What I'm trying to do is just shine light and say, you don't have to carry that anymore. It's, it's just as we've seen broken bones reset in an instant, we've seen people who are sexually abused get free from that emotional pain in an instant. And don't go back and rehearse it. Get your new identity. And so um, you guys ready? All right, so let's just do this. I just ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, um, is there anything that I'm carrying that you don't want me to carry? And see if he tells you anything. All right, and ask, Holy Spirit, what do you want to give me instead? I want you guys to look at me for a second. Remember, when you're holding on to something, you can't receive it. So I want you to let go of that one thing that you're carrying that you're not supposed to carry. And I want you just to receive by faith the thing that he said he'd give you. He didn't tell it to you because he's teasing. You. He wants to give it to you. So just in these next 30 seconds, just between you and the Lord, whatever that looks like, make that exchange. Get that thing instead. Let go of the one, receive the other. Lord, I just thank you that you are our great high priest, and you sympathize with our weaknesses. You were tempted in every way, yet without sin, and now we can boldly come to you for your throne of grace. I thank you that it's not a throne of performance or a throne of we have to be good enough. We can just come and receive help in time of need. So Lord, I just thank you for the exchanges that were made today, that people are being healed on the inside, and that now they can prosper on the outside. Amen. Say this with me, this healing belongs to me. Because of what Jesus